think with private utilities, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm guessing the the cost benefit analysis for them is it's probably cheaper for them to maintain things than to actually have to uh, put up the upfront cost of uh, installing underground lines everywhere. Yeah, there was a you know that amazing fight about eminent domain and and power lines mm-hmm. that ran through southern Minnesota. I think mm-hmm. Southern Minnesota and farmers really took on because of the twin cities was, you know, kind of uh, dominating the the politics of that. I know Larry mm-hmm. Long is a, a musician, a pretty well known um, singer, songwriter, kind of musician organizer. Mm-hmm. And he was, he wrote a song um, for that. I'm forgetting the title of the song, but uh yeah, there was a whole incident around that, and you would think if anything would get them to bury them, but maybe that—that's maybe part of it too. Maybe all the farmers and all the farms are just like it's too—that's oh, true, too difficult to get it all buried through all that uh, negotiations for every hundred and sixty acre plot. Uh, that might be it too. I don't know. Uh, I just know that it's not particularly resilient infrastructure. No, the the weather. <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. No. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of power outages out, out here. Yeah. Um I guess on that note, <laughs> this seems <laughs> to be a good place to get started when talking about environmental problems. Hi, I'm Clement Lou, and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability. Mark Peddledy is very much the archetype of a Renaissance man. If you look at his university webpage, you'll see that he's written about Woody Guthrie, journalism, gender and television ads, and Aztec music. These set courses about audio production, ethnographic methods, and public speaking. In addition to his scholarship and teaching, he's in a band that I would say plays music that ranges from rockabilly to folk punk. He's also done a ton of work, some of which you can find on ecosong.net, to create spaces that bring together environmentalist musicians from different genres. He also hosts a podcast about anything and everything related to public lands. Here's how he describes himself. Uh, My name is Mark Peddelty, and I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. So professionally speaking, I'm an anthropologist by PhD degree from Berkeley. Um, Way back when I got my PhD in 93, and I... I've been a professor at the University of Minnesota since about 1999, and I am in the College of Liberal Arts, and despite being an anthropologist, I'm in communication studies because my work Mm -hmm. mainly has had to do with communication, mass communication, media, Mm. Um, and uh, because of that, I, I at least when I started out, when I was back in grad school in Berkeley, at that point, media anthropology was more of an idea than a thing. Mm-hmm. And um, that really brought me more into the, the orbit and world of communication studies, which really worked out well. I just mm-hmm. find myself, I gravitate to some of the questions that are asked there, um, and in addition to being an immediate anthropologist now and still being in focus of those, particularly liking the global aspect of that. But mm-hmm. that's, I guess, who I am, an anthropologist who's in a communication department that studies communication. 
um, my main research focus is on music mm -hmm. and as environmental communication. So mm -hmm. in a way, it's broad range. In another way, it's pretty narrow. I really focus on questions of, of environmental communication, specifically looking at music mm -hmm. and looking at music specifically as a form of environmental communication. Yeah. Um, outside of professionally, a lot of the things I do and love connect to that. You know, I think like a lot of guests you have on your podcast, I really just love getting outdoors in every possible mm -hmm. way I can. Listen to Mark's introduction. Let me ask him about his thoughts about music as a mode of communication, supporting discourse about environment, sustainability, and equity. This is what he said about that topic and the burgeoning field of ecomusicology. What you do for your scholarship is similar to like what I'm trying to do on this podcast, which is to like think about like how to maybe grow discourse or at least like provide yeah. forums for discourse or just think about discourse when it comes to uh, environment and like equity and like sustainability. Um, right, I do it in terms of like having conversations, but I think you you think about it in terms of like music. Uh, I guess my sort of inarticulate question that i'm trying to get at is how do you think about that so like it strikes me that you are thinking about discourse and you're thinking about yeah. uh how people have discourse and i it seems to me that you're actually trying to create forums for there to be a more robust discourse uh but it, through the form of music so i'm just i guess i'm just asking yeah. you to say a little bit more about like how you think of all those things or right? like how we converse better sure. about like equity and environment and sustainability sure and it's specific specifically in form of music because i yeah. think you're right i was i was looking at that when i first moved from looking at music and ritual pretty mm -hmm. early on especially in mexico and latin america and, and and central america but especially in mexico i was really interested it really took me putting two things together at that point music and environment Largely because I was struck by the fact of how little was going on in musicology, mm -hmm. ethnomusicology, popular music studies, um, which to jump ahead, the very first International Association of Study of Popular Music, which is the IASPM, which is the main popular music studies mm -hmm. body, uh, um, is going to, is about in July, is about to hold their first conference that's themed on environment. That's and cool. so really, in some ways where you'd expect popular music, which was probably in the actual domain of, of professional popular music making, mm -hmm. was probably there a little bit before most of the, the um, you know, uh, Luther Adams and, and others in, mm -hmm. in classical music started doing it. And Luther Adams was very early on in classical music doing that. So it's sort of surprising. It's almost the reverse in in uh, music studies, where it's the mm -hmm. musicologists, the cl the classicists, essentially, that took it on first, mm -hmm. uh, more than anybody, you know. And when I say first, it's very complicated. And, and in fact, I probably <laughs> shouldn't get too deep in that because with uh, with four wonderful collaborators, right. Aaron Allen, who's a musicologist, Rebecca Derrickson, who's an ethnomusicologist, Chow and Chen, who's an ethnomusicologist, but really ranges as a grad student already is right. kind of what we're calling an echo musicologist, you might say. Right, right. And Tyler Kinnear, who's who's in sound studies and acoustic ecology. The five of us 
were tasked with sort of spelling out what is the history of music and environment across these disciplines and as they hook together for this thing we've been loosely calling ecomusicology, largely because none of the other things, it was kind of interstices, the interstitial mm-hmm. aspect that nobody was really dealing with kind of music in that crisis element, right. the sort of, um, you know, silent spring uh, kind of post-60s, how do we deal with these things in terms of climate change, toxins, pollution, right. et cetera? And that's really what most of us come together across these disciplines being interested in. Yeah. Not to say that work's never done in another under another name or whatever, certainly has been. In fact, all of us, you know, just as I present myself in a, in a home discipline, mm-hmm. none of us really think of ourselves as ecomusicologists per se. Mm-hmm. I use the book, the word in a title long after Alexander Redding used it as a suggestion for a, a subfield mm-hmm. and long after in the 1970s, it was suggested as something, but I digress a little bit here. I think it is the interest in creating discourse around this in a place where maybe it needs to be more um prominent Mm -hmm. and that's even in the world of the professional musicians like just for example my work on the salish sea which is the out here the water bodies puget sound georgia Strait, Strait of juan fuca etc out here in in north in western washington and and uh in bc that even here as i went around and talked to different musicians that were doing environmental work Mm -hmm. i was surprised to the extent which they didn't know each other Even within the same state, yeah, yeah. but especially across that, you know, imaginary borderline between the two places, right. um, they just didn't know each other, even though there's only a handful really that are associated that come to names for other musicians, musicians, when somebody say, right. oh, you know, environment, you're going to want to talk to Dana Lyons. Right. Oh, have you thought about the raging grannies? What they do is so crazy, you know, all that kind of thing that even though I'd go to these folks, I'd go to these folks and they didn't really know each other. So point being, I don't think there was much of a discourse around that. Yeah. And discourse being a real key word here, and that and this is going to be a little wonkish, but sure. discourse as in people weren't talking about it. Right. People were kind of doing it. And so how do we talk about it? Because that's what scholars do, talk and write about it. Right. But also recognizing, and I I love this sort of, you know, old cliche or whatever, that that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> Um, you know, that, that when we talk about musical discourse, we have to be, I think I'm always a little wary of turning everything into text and discourse, you know, one being imagining the written word, one being imagining, you know, the written word plus, you know, with sort of oral communication when in fact, music's something a little bit different than that. And Mm -hmm. as a form of communication, including as environmental communication, it works very differently than other other forms of communication, other media, other discourses, if we want to use that word yeah. very broadly. Well, so, okay. So now there's two questions I want to ask you. I'm going to ask them both now so I don't forget because I'm probably going to forget one if <laughs> once I ask the other one. And so that, right, both questions are in the air so that if I forget it, you can remember it and answer it. Uh, so the, the two questions are, one, um, I'd like to ask you more to like about your kind of thoughts about what makes music distinct as a a form of con like communication right like yeah right? like so you you're you your your previous answer sort of drew sort of distinction between like how we might converse in terms of like right like 
speech or how we might speak to one another or like write to one another versus, you know, the ways we communicate through music. I'd like to hear your thoughts about that, like that, that sort of distinction and why it's important. And the other one is, um, when you talk, when you were talking about like your actual example, like in Washington and how folks haven't been able to like engage in conversation together, made me think like there's, there seems to me to be like an analogy between like, say with musicians and genres to like the, right, the, the different disciplines and fields within academia yeah. where we're sometimes like there's folks focus on very similar problems, but because of like the various silos we find ourselves in, we don't actually know about each other. We don't talk to each other. And like mm-hmm. we, we miss in some of that interchange that would lead to more sort of robust and more fruitful work. So I, I want to ask you about like, what do you think? Do you think that that's a similar sort of thing happening in music and in like, right? the academic world. And so, yeah, those are the two questions. Oh, those are, those are great questions. Oh, I'd like to take on that second one first. I think it's such a good question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on these things as well. Um, The first, you know, taking on that second question, I think you're, you're really hit the nail on the head. When I'm talking to these different musicians, I realize how much it is the case that is very genre style driven, you Mm -hmm. know, that the, the world of a Dana Lyons is sort of a folksy, um, but you know, kind of, uh, a humor oriented movement oriented musician. Okay is not necessarily going to intersect um, other than through an academic context, like I put together where intersect is <laughs> say a, a choral group that does this kind of thing. Mm. In other words, the thing that's the defining genre there is not environment. You know, it hasn't risen to that level. Right. And I think that's what we've seen in, in all areas, but especially music Okay, in that, that I think in writing mm. um, several of the discourses and, and worlds we've talked about, say in scholarship, the environmental humanities is a thing now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Environmental studies, there's words that kind of, that people will identify with that maybe even is not going to be as powerful as their home discipline, as far as their operating need within a bureaucracy, within a, Mm -hmm. in a form of conversation within a world of publication. Mm -hmm. It's a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think there's not really such a thing as environmental music that, that brings together a lot of people in that kind of way yet categorically as a genre. Mm -hmm. And so I think you really hit the nail on the head. And to a certain extent, it's almost like they, you know, reporters talk about how if you want to know what a city council or anybody are really emphasizing, you go to the budget. Yes. I think to a certain extent, the analogy, it might be literal here, but also the, the more metaphorical analogy is what musicians, musical audience, et cetera, consider important okay. is reflected by genre in that sense, you know, yeah. that it's not really the environmental aspect of it it's not the you know messaging etc of environmental it's going to bring them to something right. still it's going to be something else and i think that's why a lot of musicians and this expands beyond environment to other sorts of political musics etc mm-hmm. that really one of the things most musicians emphasize that do that especially ones that that really want to do sort of like musical organizing whatever is they talk about first how it has to be good music right good of course defined by the musician by the audiences by various cultural you know um genre again genre is so strong as far as determining okay at this moment this is what the organized sound has to be for it to feel artful it really has to be that though to work 
on these other levels of environmental messaging and uh, put into to place in a sort of environmental context. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, as far as how musical discourses work differently, you know, one book that just really hit me in this regard um, mm-hmm. was a book called Dylan and Cohen. Okay. And it's about Leonard Cohen and, and Bob Dylan, and it's called the poets of rock and roll. And it's by David Bosher. But yeah, just despite that subtitle or maybe because of it, he does a really nice job early on of making the point that lyrics are not poetry. Right. So if we consider poetry the least sort of pro prosaic, is that a word? <laughs> the least sort of prose oriented, <laughs> you know, kind of expository, um, you know, message driven thing. Yeah. He, he points out that you take it a little further, even with lyrics, that lyrics are musical. They're vocables that have certain sounds, so that has to be there for it to work. Right. Their rhyming schemes are often more structured or have to be. Um, they have to, and they're often not necessarily secondary to the music, all depending, although depending on the genre. You know, I just, I always love that moment that they, it might be apocryphal, but I, yeah. I think it's on tape somewhere where the Beatles were asked, you know, um, you know, how would you compare yourself to, to Beethoven? I mean, surely you wouldn't. And they said, yeah, our lyrics are much better. And I'm paraphrasing <laughs> here, but it's the genre question, right? Yeah. Lyrics are not that important in, in, in class, most classical forms. No. Um, it's other sort of musical qualities, whereas in in popular music, often it can be very strophic, as in it can have repeated frames or whatever, mm-hmm. and that is looked down on in a classical genre, but it's the lyrics often that do rise more to the fore, depending on the form, like hip-hop, of course, are extremely important. Right. So point being here that music doesn't, I think, ever sort of is, even in that form, is never so driven by message and words alone that it's easy to to sort of analyze in the same way you would analyze just sort of an abstracted text right on you know and and, and so i think that that's that's for me one of the most important things in thinking about music it's it's more of an emotive um feel driven um uh, domain and that makes it right. harder sometimes to talk and write about in scholarship where it's everything is about the writing and then as far as what is it that makes it environmental and mm-hmm. this is where I'll, I'll i'll sort of end this sort of long discussion answer your question but they were just such good questions you really got me going here yeah, yeah. um i i you know, and frankly, if anybody could ever find this quote for me again, I would really appreciate it. I, at one point, I know I came across a quote by Levi Strauss that talked about how music that's about water, if you were not told, if there was not some denotative title or whatever that says, this is about water, you yeah. wouldn't know. And I think that's pretty true. I mean, I even a song like Sobre las Olas, the, you know, Over the Waves, a great Mexican song. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. You know what we all think of it with water. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it, the semiotics there are marrying that sound to images of waves, or knowing it's called over the waves, etc. That over time has has entrenched that in our minds that this is about water. Yeah, and then we kind of go, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. This is a rising and falling of you know the 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 melody line. Of course, it makes sense, but. You know, and some of this, I think some musicologists would kind of rankle at, but, yeah. I, you know, for the most part, I think music is that sort of, you know, 
floating signifier, if you will, that can be made into different meanings. And so for it become environmental, it's usually some sort of context. Right. Lyrics, you know, where it's employed, where it's performed, that makes it environmental. And that also can be very different than film, text, et cetera, where it's a little bit more denotative at some point or yeah. explicit that this is about the environment. Mark telling me about the parallels between the siloing of music genres, the siloing of disciplines in higher ed, and his thoughts about the privileging of formal conventions over content, let me ask him about what we might learn from studying music in regards to more effectively communicating. But before we listen to that conversation, I should mention that Mark refers to an anecdote that I told him that's not included in this episode. That anecdote is a story about a former student of mine who wrote several songs about the Connecticut River, where he metaphorically reflects upon the human impact on the river in terms of the troubled relationship between two unhappy lovers. Do you, what, what sort of special things do you think that, that focusing on music as the kind of, as a form of communication would give us a discourse or would give us to like have a, a like a, a broader discourse about sustainability than we might get from more spoken and like written ways yeah. of communication? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good point. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I'm not going to say it's anemic, but yeah. it's not done as much as other forms. I mean, for example, rhetoricians yeah. almost purely study text and speech. Yeah. And when they turn to the rhetoric of music, tend to do that same thing where they reduce music to um, a sort of textual discourse, which yeah. you can't completely do. When you look at something like the National Communication Association, International Communication Association, and these other bodies, there isn't much on music there. And I think that's because um, it's, it is hard mm-hmm. to explain what music is communicating. It's, it is usually a feeling, and it is not as denotative. It is not as analytically deconstructible as yes. something that's that is more clearly semiotic although i think i think semiotics per my earlier example is something that's probably underdone as far as understanding what has been attached to the music to give it a certain messaging that makes it kind of communicative in that sense right um co-constructive what makes it you know something that's constitutive if it is yeah. As opposed to something that is that is just uh, mirroring or or you know um, sort of the old model of of speaker A to speaker B and communicating between them, you know that that's harder to do with music. But you know, returning to your very nice example of the Connecticut River and as a lover or whatever, it made me really think of Pete Seeger and the Hudson River as you know yeah. that relationship. It was so deep, and it's one that that comes to mind for a lot of people when they think about this relationship between say musician organizer place yeah um and people and then it also raises that uh, a bigger issue and that of personhood you know the the sort of legal battles etc around giving personhood for better or for worse to more than human entities mm-hmm. um and that is something that comes up a lot in the musical study of environment and especially the environmental music study of music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, on that point, I would say that is the kind of thing that, that eco critics that are in, for example, musicology really do kind of like to take on. Um, it's something that you really can think about when it's broadening the context between be beyond, you know, for example, acoustic ecology for the longest time was mm-hmm. more about that very immediate soundscape. Okay. Where are you listening? 
um, where is the the musician performing or, you know, something of that nature, as opposed to that more broadly contextual, like we're talking about a whole watershed right. as it's evoked in music. And, you know, those kind of more, if you will, ecological connections of the music. And I think here we get back to your point about discipline. Mm-hmm. I think people get a little fearful because they see their discipline diminish almost inevitably hmm. as you broaden the scale, mm-hmm. you know? So music is just going to be a part of this and it's not going to be the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true almost across the board. And I think that does keep us sometimes understandably narrow. We had to be reductive in order to say something. Right. But of course, maybe more people given crises, et cetera, need to also have that more ecological, whatever you want to call it, holistic relational mindset right. that looks at some of these things and isn't afraid that if if that thing doesn't get diminished in that context, but it gets enhanced and understood because I think as human beings, we never understand anything. Say music. Right. I don't think we ever really experience music completely abstracted from the visuals. So while I really respect those in like sound studies, acoustic ecology that do sound walks, like my friend Tyler Kinnear, um, who just does this brilliantly, he leads sound walks, um, but really kind of trying to, okay, let's try to to not be so scopocentric. Let's just hear what's out there or whatever. That's a really great thing to do. Yeah. And it is also the case, that I think most of the time, however, when most of us experience music we experience in relationship to sight in relationship to taste in relationship to history in re- you know in, in relationship to place to get at the ecological and so i guess that's what i'm sort of more interested in is it is on that at that level and then therefore you know you run into some dangers and I'll, I'll end this here because it's it sort of does become like okay where where have i been criticized for doing this or that right. who do i end up being you know affiliated with because they also think about it this way etc yeah um i will say that um that i really don't think it does diminish um sound to do that but it it is this case we're trying to sort of almost escape certain aspects of genre and not just have to repeat what is already done in the discipline. Yeah. So, for example, in publishing books and articles about music, being expected to do what I'm talking about here and then also do a sort of deep sonic analysis of here's what's going with that arpeggio. Mm-hmm. Here's what's happening with that minor declension or whatever. And purposely saying, I can do that. You know, um, like a lot of people, like yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, I was raised with music and I understand music. I can read music. I play music, et cetera. But I choose not to take up those 6,000 words in the article or the 100,000 words in a book Mm -hmm. doing that when it's already being done and there's not enough done that's that more contextual work. Mm -hmm. And so you run into that difficulty too, I think, as a scholar that does this kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not sure what my question is, because there's two things that I'm thinking, like listening to you talk, and I'm going to say the things I'm thinking, and I'll let you find the question and what I'm thinking. I like it. <laughs> the two things I'm thinking, the first one is, um, I tend to agree with you. I, I think uh, thinking about music, musicology, uh, or right, like the study of music in the context of environment, I think actually grows it in some ways, because I think right? Like folks who study environmental communication, right? Do tend to be rhetoricians that tend to think about like, how do 
different sorts of arguments uh, appealed to populations when we're trying to like right, argue for particular like environmental policies or like kind of ways of framing the environment or the ways we approach stewardship of the environment. But uh, it strikes me that we're often like, right. People are often fairly resistant to arguments, right? Rhetoric. I think more often, and particularly now, I think just right. Falls flat. Like people have ideas and it's mm. hard to convince them. Otherwise one way I think we can get convinced is through the arts. Right. So like I know mm-hmm. a lot of folks who sort of, political views are shaped by the music they grew up listening to or the music they discovered when they were in like high school or college. Right. Like uh, I suspect like, right. The fair number of the world's anarchists are anarchists because they happen to like really fall in love with punk music at some point. (laughs) (laughs) True. True. Uh, And so I, I think, right. Like it's not a matter of diminishment. It's a matter of like actually uh, helping rhetoric, like, environmental rhetoricians, you know, getting, get exposure to forms of communication that, uh, right. Sometimes convince us in ways that, uh, arguments can't, uh, that's the, the first mm-hmm. thought I had. The second thought I had, um, Oh, I talked so long. Like, I'm trying to remember what the thought is now. I well, talked that so long first one is really good. If you want to write down a, a note for your second <laughs> one, I don't mind. I mean, I've already got, I mean, this is, sure. that's just a great question. Starting with uh, something I am going to steal from you. As you know, I have a podcast called the Public Lands Podcast. Yeah. And I don't know how many times I kind of, as I'm asking the question, go, wait, what's my question here? And I'm going <laughs> to borrow that Please ask to ask the guests. Please find my question there. I thought that was just wonderful there. But you had a really good question there, and 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 I think that you're you're absolutely right. Um, first, uh, rhetoric is the center of environmental communication mm-hmm. for the most part. Having said that, there's sort of different environmental communications that don't always come together, even in the same organization, like the International Environmental Communication Association E I E C A. Mm-hmm which has every two years something called COSI, which I strongly recommend, the, the Conference on, on Communication and the Environment. Um, I, you'll see there that I think rhetoric and, and, and communication in the main is the, the sort of center there. Having said that, professional environmental communicators uh, coming out of the more like environmental studies, environmental science, et cetera, mm-hmm. often don't intersect with that world as much. They're, and as practitioners, that's problematic because there's much they could learn from that. And in my environmental communication course, I make sure that students are learning that. Mm-hmm. But it's also problematic in that the environmental communication scholarship isn't always speaking to what you can get from what I think has to be a praxis discipline. Right. It has to be theory informed by practice right. and practice informed by theory to really be meaningful and useful and interesting and pro- productive, et cetera. And sometimes that's lacking because those two worlds don't link together. Right. And then your point connected to that that's so important is you're absolutely right that that argument in the sense of the traditional sense of reason right you know so for example uh while i think too much is done about the liberal arts um being sort of a you know just a 
almost as it's an essentialist point of view, the, this intrinsic thing that it, without it, we're done, you know? Right. Uh, when you look at the history of it, it to be a, a literally man of letters back in, you know, like the, the 1500s means mm-hmm. that you were literate so you could write down other people's thoughts, you know? And it developed, it right. had a very specific thing. The humanists were a very specific movement, et cetera. But we kind of abstracted as if reason is only done in that form. Now, having said that, I do think argumentation as has developed out of that and the study of argumentation and reason as a thought that, you know, you should be able to put out a thesis, explicitly have evidence to back it up and some sort of logic that presents it. I think we all, or most of us wish politics was more like that, for example, and certainly is less like that than ever right now. Yes. Um, you know, we wish that that kind of politics could be debated in that reason mode and there'd be really be an advancement of it. So, so I understand the frustration of a rhetorician that said, why don't people do this better, understand it better? Right. Um, and why can't we have more of it? So I, I right. definitely understand that. And I think as thinking of different genres, while every once in a while a public testimony when somebody gets up and sing can be very powerful, yeah. I certainly don't think that we want our various parliaments and, Congre- <laughs> and congresses running mainly based on you know artistic expression and you know uh, uh, whether it's dance, music, etc. That's not what those sort of sort of forms do well. Though, so, and he, and here's what I just hold okay. one thought that just to finish up, I think that that is the problem of the polysemic nature of music. I mean, yeah. John Philip Sousa once said, I love national anthems. And they said, wait, what national anthem? He goes, all of them, you know, they all make my hair stand up. Right. You know, they're, it, it's, you can see that there's nothing intrinsic about rocks as rock as music, as Lawrence uh, Grossberg has pointed out, it can be employed for good, bad, left, right, whatever. Right, right. It's very polysemic. So I don't think it is the case that, that music has a sort of intrinsic message as far as the organized sound part of it, right. as opposed to how it's employed. Wouldn't take that too far. There's certain things like minor um, <laughs> chords, et cetera, that give you a certain mood uh, that's going to, you're not going to use in a James Bond, you know, film. You're not going to use a happy, happy, um, you know, uh, major chords, major melody, major keys. Right. Um, you're going to have a more minors, whatever, because it strikes a certain mood. And that's probably not just genre and culture of the moment bound. There's probably certain things that are intrinsic to how we communicate musically. Right. But, for the most part, per that Levi Strauss thought, uh, you know, you can employ mu- the same music almost any way, depending on what you semiotically connect it to. Right, and that's not reason. That's not that's not the kind of thing rhetorician study. Right, right. No, okay. So you you talking made me think of something that you know I just is sort of funny, and then another thing which I it, which is the original thing, the second thing that I wanted to ask you. So the the funny thing is, I think Congress would be much better if the form that they had taken was rap battles, right? Like if right, like they just had to get up and whoever could like, right, spit the best bars would win. Cause I, I, I would, I would follow politics much more closely than I do now. If that was the case, uh, the, the second thing is, um, so you, when you were talking about the importance of praxis, it reminded me of what I, the, the, the second thought I had when you were speaking previously, which is, uh, the other day I was, happened to be watching a TikTok with a music theorist who was talking about Kurt Cobain and answering a comment where the, the commenter asked whether, uh, the music theorist thought that Kurt Cobain was well studied in music theory or if he was composing by ear. And then the, the response was, well, almost certainly composing by ear. It doesn't matter if you knew music theory because all great music is composed by ear theory, right? Music theory 
explains why we like certain sounds. It doesn't <laughs> dictate why we like certain sounds. Uh, and I think you're, you're getting at something like that, right? Like there's this idea of where musicology is useful. And I think useful for thinking sort of in the broader study of communication as it relates to like building of movements and like uh, when it relates to sustainability is that um, I think studying a music helps us understand how music can convince us of things, right? Like it's certainly the case that right, uh, listening to, you know, Pete Seeger, I, I think has created more progressives than, you know, reading, I don't know who's a good progressive theorist, right? I can't even think of like an equivalent political theorist that would have that, like maybe like Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn, but like mm-hmm. for sure, more people have listened to Pete Seeger than like have read Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn, <laughs> which <laughs> I, maybe is a little sad. More people should read Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn, but like, right. It, it seems like there's this whole kind of broad area of like the ways that we're convinced through communication that uh, isn't appreciated. And I, I, and it strikes me that like, the study of music can actually get at some of that, which I think is important. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And people like Joe Hill, you know, in the early 1900s, I think he was shot in Utah in 1916. So it was, you know, it, it, around the turn of the century, he's doing most of his organizing for the Wobblies. Yeah, yeah. And he said his famous quote is something like, you know, I, I, I use music instead of writing a brochure or a pamphlet because people maybe read that once and throw it away. People sing a song over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there is this element where instead of just doing what you know, I was doing where I'm separating the two. It's also recognizing that how how the, how all these discourses come together. Mm-hmm. Um, music is not only um, not only possible to so like you mentioned a rap battle in Congress, which you know ultimately <laughs> I kind I get a little nervous of that this is going to be a this is going to be a little bit of a detour before I get back to the important. <laughs> I get a little nervous just because of this. I yeah. remember speaking of punk that the way in which the parody, you know of the clash sex pistols. And then you move into groups like fear, you know, in the United States where they're playing with nationalistic symbols to parody, parody them. Yeah. But at a certain point, either it's just an in-group that's still getting its parody because it so easily becomes oi punk music then again, showing the sort of floating signifier. And so, how do you judge that rap battle? You know, because um, the good sounding music might not be the one that agree- that is the argument that you would want to come forth. You know, um, but anyway, no. that I, I I do definitely detour there. Um, coming back to to share your point there, as far as um, you know, like I was saying, Joe Hill and mm-hmm. others that yeah, music. I, a book I like. It's another book that's a little bit older, in the late nineties. Madelart. Um, he wrote, oh, no, that's not Madelart. Uh, Matern. Sorry. <laughs> Boy, my brain. Anyway, Mark Matern. Um, uh, and it's about, it's called Acting in Concert. And it really yeah. struck me because in the end, he talks about how not only is music able to do things for, for organizing groups mm-hmm. politically, et cetera, but there's really no form of organization that happens without it. 
I mean, even going back to our Congress example, trying to think about the driest, you know, sort of World Parliament Congress. Yeah. It does have a sort of pageantry and musicianship around it to kind of give that emotive feeling, importance, legitimated, et cetera. And then on the local level, as far as groups, the kind of stuff I study coming together, it's hard to imagine any of that really happening well without music. And I think part of the sort of Weberian Protestant ethic that you get in North America, well, North America above the Rio Grande, Is that's a little unfortunate is this idea, this puritanical sense that it's not serious, it's not political, it's not meaningful, it's and scholarly, et cetera. Mm-hmm. If it does sort of imbibe in the emotional arts, well, that's a canard. Um, you know, that there's always a sort of music and art that goes with a discord in or discourse in order to give it meaning and mobilize it. So when we look at organizations, I think you really see that. So when I mentioned Joe Hill, you know, that's kind of an obvious way of somebody saying, I'm using music in order to get this across because I think it works and I think it's important and I think it can be artful. I think it's, we have to sort of, it's so omnipresent sometimes that we forget that, you know, what happens in that, that program that's talking about, you know, here on this tragic day where Roe v. v. Wade is, was overturned by the con- by Supreme Court, what happens in those advertisements that are full of music, what happens in the breaking report when the music comes on, et cetera, that music's not incidental. That emotional communication that's, going, that's taking place is part and parcel of the communication that's, that's, that's the political in this case, or as we're talking environmental. Here might be a good spot to end this episode. So far, we've learned a bit about who Mark Peddlety is, the study of music as a form of communication about the environment, and how thinking about music might help us more robustly understand effective communication and persuasion. In the next episode of Just Sustainability, we'll return to the conversation that I had with Mark and learn about what he thinks about advocacy, academic and creative projects, as well as podcasting. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.